Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Blog Talk Radio. Nightlight. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world around us and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Nightlight. A reminder that you are never alone. And now your host, internationally renowned spiritual intuit, medium, channel, author, artist, lecturer, ordained minister, and good all-around girl, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Welcome, everybody, to Nightlight. That was the magical voice of Ken Quiet-Hawk inviting you to come in out of the mainstream and join us for a time to be sheltered from the storms of evolution and change, which we laughingly call creation. Come and join in with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with any luck, a little wisdom. These are times of change, times that call to the seekers, and you answer that call from all walks of life, from countless aspects of the spiritual realms. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading your wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. We all come from different backgrounds and modalities, from all walks of life, and yet there is a synchronicity, a commonality that draws us and blends us together weaving us once more into a collective purpose, a common direction, and a united family once again. We go by different titles, labels, names, if you will. We call ourselves watchers, wardens, indigos, soothsayers, mystics, questers, querents, journeyers, lightworkers, lightbearers, torchbearers, spiritual empaths, shamans, and 
Oh, my God, that list, it goes on and on. It is as unique and eclectic as are we. Yet we all have the same spiritual calling, and we all in our own very individual ways bring light into this reality to facilitate the awakening and the shifting of the consciousness for all of mankind. This is my own very private oasis in the turmoil we call evolution. So sit back, take a break, share your lights with us, and join in the love, the light, and the laughter that spiritual energy always generates when lights are blended and spirits are listed. I'm Barb DeLong, your host, and along with Deb Schiller, who's in the chat room, and our special guest tonight, Fritz Zimmerman, we welcome you in and hope you'll add your lights to ours to increase the energy and brighten all of our own personal lights. Ken Quiethawk can be found at nativestorytellers.com. I'm at barbaradelong.com, and Fritz will give us wherever he can be contacted. I do believe that that um, that his books, his book. Um, that we're going to be talking about tonight can be gotten on um, on Amazon, and, and we'll give you that information and put it in the chat room in just a few minutes. It's truly, truly an honor to have him with us tonight. He writes and speaks to topics that really resonate to me and my spirit, and happily, a lot of a lot of subjects that have uh, certainly been calling to me for the last decade or two or three. He's an independent researcher and author and antiquities preservationist. He's been working on this material for 10 years, and, and it, it didn't start out as a 10-year project, but it did stretch into that. The Nephilim Chronicles is the name of his books, and it's the most complete reporting of all of the giant skeletons unearthed throughout the ages from across the globe. I don't think he's missed many of them. Um, the, the full name of his book is The Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, and it trails the origins of the bedrock race. It provides undeniable evidence and outlining completely the Nephilim's migration across the globe, as chronicled by mounds and earthworks they built, and symbolism they used. So those seeking factual historical data on information, it's all there and it's phenomenal. Who really built Stonehenge and the other earthworks throughout the world? It's the most complete list of giant skeletons and artifacts um, that I have ever seen. And, and from those of you who have gone to my website, you know that it happens to be one of my um, my special projects that I've been delving into. And, and he has overwhelmed me with all of the material that he's found. Origins of New Age Beliefs, How Pre-Native American Indians Really Worshipped. And, and then he goes into the origins of numerology and how it was used to align the mounds and the earthworks perfectly towards the rising and setting sun. Um, and and it, it, it goes on and on, origins of earth mother worship and common symbolism still used today. Uh, it, he, has, he has taken a project that started out to be actually, you know, sort of simple. And um, they have... He's taken it. He's taken it way beyond. It's almost. Yeah. It, it. I can so totally relate to how he seems to be working because um, it resonates so much to to how how I get going with things. It's it's a little and a little more and then a little more and then a little more and before you know it, oh, a decade or two has gone by. So I I want to um, I want to welcome Fritz to the show. Fritz, thank you so much for being here tonight. Yes, good evening, Barbara. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, your work is is profound. I I have to admit, I I have collected a lot of the um, old newspaper articles from the late 1700s and then, of course, the 1800s and early 1900s on giants. But, I mean, your list is phenomenal. I have never, ever seen um, as many put together and, and, and done as well as you've done. And you, 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 bring, you, you, you smack us in the face with the fact that it's not just one or two. It's thousands of them. And... Um, it overwhelmed me. So, how did how did the Nephilim? How did this book start? Well, actually, it started with uh, very small. And um, um, whoever's the audio, I'm getting a lot of feedback. So, if you could take care of that, uh, I don't know if I can get through this here in uh, this two second delay. Um, it started small. Okay, let me see. What can we do? Are you on a speakerphone? No. No. Huh. No, okay, but I've got, um, uh, I've, uh, I've got about a two-second, I'm hearing everything I say about two seconds later. That is really frustrating. Um, I tell you what, um, I'm going to um, brag about your book, and I'm going to – you have Skype where you are? I uh, I can move to Skype. I'm I'm talking to you right now from a mobile phone, but uh if you send me to your audio person and I get a number from them, I can call the uh, Skype number. Okay. Um um hopefully Deb is listening. Deb, I'm going to put you on in the green room with Fritz and you two change numbers and she'll try to bring you in on Skype, okay? Okay. Okay. There you go. There you go. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit here. Um, the thing that that um, that intrigues me so much about Fritz and and, and all of his work, um, I got fascinated with the element with the element of, of uh, giants uh, probably a couple of years ago. And, and like I said, if any of you um, have been to my website, you'll see on your on my special projects. There's a whole bunch there, a uh, whole bunch of articles. On, on on the giants and and I became very aware that that, that this isn't just the fee fifo I you know fee fifo foam giants we're talking about we're talking about a great a race that that obviously was here in this country uh prior to the native americans uh, those those that we call native americans the the indians came in and they they had to blend they had to fight they had to battle but but we're and we're not talking small groups here we're talking thousands hundreds of thousands of of giants and they they go back sometimes 50,000 years they 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 go back to um the time of the glaciers so that they were actually here um, when the glaciers were here, so that there is a, a sense here of this is a race, a part of our species, a part of our inheritance that that the the history books have absolutely totally uh, negated out, and and I I don't know personally why, I mean, except of course that they would have to um, rewrite the history books, and and scientists don't like to do that. Um, these these bones um if any of you are familiar with the mounds that that have been were been were been that have been all across the country 
those were built by these giants and and they've been buried in them and they've been buried you know facing the east a lot of the time northeast um um you know uh sort of sort of according to the according to the cardinal directions they've been buried sitting up they um their skulls were of course different they are, and and I I don't know how many times I have read over and over and over again that their skulls were big enough to put over the head of a very large man and if you can if you can stop and think about how big that would have to be to go over your head or the head of a a larger person man whatever um and they they stood anywhere from uh 8 feet to 12 feet to 20 feet to 30 feet so that so that the um the the, the giants in the bible were actually giants. It, it wasn't just, you know, it, it was, they were giants. <laughs> and, you know, we hear about Og, I think, was the, the, the one that we hear the most about when, when we're talking Old Testament and we're talking giants and things like that. And apparently, um, according to some stories, uh, Og was fed by Noah through, the, uh, through a hole in the roof of the ark so that he survived the um the flood the giants did survive the flood and they have been um, they are they have been among us for a very very long time and it's it's interesting because in Fritz's book um and he'll repeat what i'm saying and probably say it right but um in his book he talks about how um the indians when when people would ask about the mounds um, the Indians would say, oh, oh, we didn't build those. The white Indians did. And the white Indians, of course, being the giants. So I think I have Fritz back. Hold on. Hi, Fritz. You there? Yes. yes. Is this better? Hopefully. I don't know. Let me uh, say a few lines here and see if I hear anything back. Okay, yeah, I don't so hear any. It's not as bad, though. Okay. Um, not sure how to fix that. Um, well, anyhow, I've been giving people a sort of um, rundown on, on the giants, and you, you were starting to tell us how this book, you know, started out. Well, never with any intention of finding giant skeletons. I was actually doing some research on mounds in northern Indiana. And uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I live, we have the second largest theological library. And uh, so I have county histories from every county in the U.S. As I was researching the mounds, I kept finding large skeletons expanded from northern Indiana to all of Indiana to all of Ohio to all of Kentucky to all of West Virginia. Um, about 10,000 books were researched to get the list. Uh, it was about 13 or 14 months in the library every day to go through all these books. So the list that I have, I'm the only person in the U.S., unless you come to either Fort Wayne, Indiana, or... Um, Salt Lake City, Utah, that could uh, even possibly um, achieve the... Wow. Yeah, the reverb is still there. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you answer me a question. I'm just not going to uh, listen to the receiver and uh, use this more as a microphone. 
Okay, that's that's a great idea. Just turn off your um well take are you on a headset or whatever? No, but um after I you ask a question, I'm just going to turn the phone around so I don't hear this coming back through my ear. Okay, that's great. So um so keep going with um where um you know, you started in looking at the mounds and then um how did it explode? How did you go from there? Where did you go from there? Well, in uh, as far as the, the burial mounds go, uh, you know, part two of the Nephilim Chronicles is the Nephilim Chronicles, the travel guide to the ancient ruins in the Ohio Valley. Um, I photographed 222 burial mound and earthwork sites in five states, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Michigan. Uh, I visited over 700 sites um, with the result of photographing the 222 uh, mounds and earthworks. So that is the largest collection of photographs and directions that's ever been provided uh, in a book. So those, of course, go along with the giant skeletons. And a lot of those sites that I did photograph actually had large skeletons within the mounds that are still there. So it's a it's a two volume set of books. Now, have have you actually seen one of these giant skeletons? No, not physically. But keep in mind that um, in the book there are at least a hundred accounts of where the Smithsonian Institute came and retrieved the bones when they would find out about them. So a lot of them were taken by the Smithsonian, and for those that would say that the Smithsonian would not hide that information, they've never come to light. And if they were all hoaxes and uh, they weren't actually large skeletons, you ask the question, why would they go to 100 sites? Why would they come to 100 remote places in the Midwest to retrieve these skeletons? Now, a lot of them, they could measure the size of the skeleton, but they were almost a chalk-like substance, and they couldn't actually pull them out and preserve them. So, But the ones that were preserved and the uh, bones were intact, a lot of those Smithsonian came and retrieved. Yeah, I in, in your book you talk about um, places like in, in Kansas there was a... Um, there was a, a site that, that covered 30 acres that had over 100,000 bodies in it. I mean, it's it's. It, I, I was telling the people that this is not just a, a the giants. The presence of giants is not is not just one or two. It's thousands and thousands of them. Are, are you at all familiar with the Brighton Wiener Cave in Germany? No. Um, this is a cave that in the 1500s they discovered giant bones in, and the government has um, has covered that one up too as well. They have the they have the the uh, report of it from the 1500s, and it was the same thing. The, the skulls could be put over a human head; they were so big they couldn't get them out of the cave. Um, so, so the the raw fact is that giants were among us and they apparently according to the native americans were here before the native americans were here how did they get here well you know in any 
any historical case like that, there has to be some impetus for somebody to come other than, you know, joyriding and just trying to find other land. So it's all economic-based. You have to keep in mind that in the ancient Levant, in the biblical lands where the Babylonians, which we have the accounted giants in the Bible known as the Amorites, this was the beginning of the Bronze Age, which begins... Uh, 3000 BC, and there was a great need for copper. The purest copper in the world is at Isle St. Royal in Upper Michigan. There had been other people that had been coming here who also were of large size as early as 7000 BC that also had their origins in Northern Europe. It's likely as metal traders made their way into the Baltic that they ran into them, found out about the large copper deposits in Isle Royal and began to come over here to extract that and send it over into um, the eastern Mediterranean to supply the Hittite, Egyptian, Sumerian armies. So that is why initially they came here. Eventually, in the Levant, as Egypt expanded, as the Hittite armies expanded into lands that were uh, those of the Amorites, I think they came here um, because of the exodus that they were just being forced out of the eastern Mediterranean and the lands, you know, now known as Israel and Syria and uh, Jordan, everything up and down uh, where what we know as the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, which was initially their home. So they left there. They were um, in England also. They were extracting tin, which uh, the tin mines are not that far from Stonehenge. Again, around 1500 B.C., the Celts start moving in to the British Isles. Uh, the Amorites and the uh, large races forced out. The last bastion is they probably came here um, after 1500 B.C. That is about the time of the Adena, who archaeologists call Adena, which were the large uh, skeletons of building the conical mounds, the hinges, the geometric earthworks in the Ohio Valley, when all that began. So the Ohio Valley was kind of the last bastion, the last place that uh, they uh, existed. Now, they they did m- mingle well, wait. Let's go, let me go even back further. Um, for those for those in the chat room and for those that have not, you know, they don't have a um, a, a good biblical type of background. Uh, can you explain where the where the giants came from? You know, originally, how did how 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 did they get here? Not 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 this country, but this uh, planet. Historic. Oh well. They didn't come from another planet, but um, they were actually the product of the last remnants of Neanderthal mixing with Cro-Magnon. Um, I have cases of Cro-Magnon skeletons dating around 20,000, 15,000 B.C. up to about 10,000 B.C. that were seven and a half, almost eight foot. They mixed in the northern latitudes with what was left of the Neanderthal. I think that is what you see as the unholy union of the fallen angel. I think all of that has roots with these two species, Neanderthal, mixing with the Cro-Magnon, kind of produced this bastard race, which was that of the giants. We know physically 
the giant skeleton skull had protruding brow ridge, a sloping skull, a lot of times double rows of teeth. But they show many archaic uh, traits that would be more Neanderthal-looking than what you would consider modern humans. So that would be the actual physical origin of the giants. Okay, but but you know the, I think usually when people think of giants, they think of um, warlike, stupid, you know, and and it, it sounds to me, it looks to me from what I've seen that they were really a very intelligent race. Well, the Amorites controlled Babylon uh, 1950 BC. Um, this is where um, advanced mathematics originated. Pi, mm-hmm. square root, all of that was formulated by the Amorites. Um, you had Hammurabi, who created the first uh, written laws. Um, the thicker geometry, geometry as we know it today, all of that originated from this giant race. So, yes, they were advanced. They were very intelligent. And, you know, now, the... the, uh, the that, that would be the book of Enoch. That says, what their story is that the angels came down and shared these secrets. Maps, following the sun, following the stars, working of metals. So there's really kind of a litmus and a... Uh, uh, a list that we can see from the book of Akina and these these secrets supposedly brought down from these angels, which they use, and we can kind of follow that through their metalwork, mining, their sun temples, their other temples that are following the moon, the stars. Mm -hmm. So it's just how to interpret the book of Enoch and what those angels were. Well, and and I was fascinated by um, how, um, especially with the mining, they would they would cut a tree down and they would leave some of the branches sticking out. So in in many ways, they created a ladder to go down into the mines that they were able to um, pull oil up from the ground as well that way. And um, you know, this is this is this is. A, a race of people that that had minds that were sharp and that that were creating all sorts of new things and and it just it seems it seems criminal to me that our history books are ignoring their existence because they certainly were there their earthen works are still they they aren't really there as much how many of the mounds really still exist time, Ohio had 10,000, and now there is probably about 120. Oh, wow. So, wow. yeah, a very small percentage is, is still left today. And in, in your book, I, I kept reading about how in, in the 1800s, you know, they would dig up one of these mounds, and they would, you know, everybody would take some of the bones home with them. I mean, there was absolutely... No, no respect for the fact that first they were desecrating a grave, and second of all, it had historical relevance. So it, it, oh, it to yeah. me, there's lots of tales of ending up in hardware stores, ending up here, ending up there. Um, it used to be uh, people would go to church, and after church, they would all get together and dig into a burial mound. Oh, and then the bones would be scattered. The guy would, one guy would take a leg bone, another guy would take the skull, and they they just disappeared. 
And when the rail, when the railroads went through, they went through these mounds with no respect to anything, and they would just throw the throw the uh, the bones to the side and keep going. And it's you know all right, there is a certain amount of of you know ignorance being bliss, but but when you have this many bones that have been scattered all over the country. Um, it, it just seems that we have been so irreverent and irrespectable of, of a part of our history that really should be brought into the fore. Because, I mean, talk a little bit about, I mean, what I found fascinating was was the sun worship, was the uh, the mathematics that they were able to bring into into our our venue, and and how 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 we have so greatly benefited from from a lot of the the material that they brought into our consciousness and yet they don't get credit at all uh, uh, some of it still exists today they worked on a base 12 on a dual decimal system um when you look at a clock and the 12 when you look at a foot 12 when you look at the month 12 that all originates from the Amorite Babylonians. And the Amorites, like I said, were the account of giants talked of uh, in the Bible. So it's there. It's not, you know, it's not accredited to these people, but anything you see in 12s is, um, has its roots in ancient Babylon. Well, now, the giants were the Canaanites as well, right? Yes, yeah, the... The Canaanites and the Amorites were actually the same people. The Canaanites were kind of the people living in the lowlands, and the Amorites early on were the people living um, in the uplands. And but that's kind of confusing because at you know one time some were cheaper, some were living on the coast. Uh, but eventually they took Babylon, and that's really when they were out and they were seeking the uh, metals to. Um, provide that to the various armies in that region and became the uh, the traders for metals across the world and would inevitably bring them to North America. Now, they, they I know they went into England at some point. How did they get across the sea? How, were they were they sailors or did they, I, I, you know, a lot of stuff says, oh, people came across the Bering Land Bridge, but... Um, you don't seem to think so. No, and you know their their ships were, you know, as large or even larger than that of the Vikings. And the Vikings got over here easy enough. They would generally take a northern route of North England and then um, Iceland, Greenland, and then on over up here. They would take the northern route and then into the Strait Lawrence Seaway, and then they would cut across there to make their way into. Uh, uh, Lake Superior, where the uh, copper was. So originally they were... Not they... That big of a it's really such a misnomer that archaeologists will believe that 40,000 years ago Neanderthals made it to Australia, but they don't believe that a civilization that knew pi and square root and, and geometry could figure out how to make a boat large enough <laughs> and seaworthy enough to... Uh, to go a relatively short distance, you know, island hopping on the way over into North America. So that's, yeah, that's just uh, that's just bad history that's being promoted by academia. Yeah, they seem to uh, promote a lot of that these days. So originally they were they were up in the in the Great Lakes area, and then they just migrated south. Is that what happened? 
Uh, eventually, I think initially they were coming here strictly for the uh, copper. Um, they just found a Minoan anchor on the Mississippi that would date, um, you know, kind of to that to that era when they were coming over here and getting the copper. So slowly some of the evidence is coming to light, and that is because independent researchers are finding it and, you know, publicizing it, whereas if academia found something like that, it would never see the light of day because it goes against the paradigm that they are trying uh, to promote, which is a Berenger theory. So anything that would contradict that theory is just hidden. Yeah, <clears throat> it it it. I, I keep telling people we have to question everything, even when it comes from a source that has been, um, you know, something that we've respected for a great period of time. We have to question it. Now, you know, it, go a little bit, if you can, into the 666 material, because I found that fascinating. Uh, 666, which, of course, we know in the Bible as being the uh, number for the devil, which is... Not correct, and not correct if you read that quote, because when it says, it says, count the number, and that is the number of the beast. So it says, let he let understanding count. So first you have to understand what they're talking about. What they're talking about is Rome. And if you take the Roman numerical sequence of 500, and you count that, it comes up to 666. So that is what they're referring to um, in that quote. 666 shows up two other times in the Bible, and one, in Chronicles, they bring Solomon 666 talents of gold. Well, we know that's in reference to the sun by the name Solomon itself, where <coughs> Sol is Latin for sun, Am is Hindi for sun, and An is the Egyptian word for sun. So the name Solomon means sun, sun, sun. Uh, uh-huh. There's another quote of... Uh, Adonachum, um, who is uh, escaping uh, Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar with him are 666 people. Uh, the name Adonachum is probably more of a reference to Adonis, which was the Phoenician sun god. So again, we have 666 attached to sun. So it's in there three times. Two times it's in reference to the sun. The other is in reference to Rome. But 666 has its roots with the Amorites, again, Babylonian Amorites. Um, it was something, a numerical codex called Jamatra. Um, the two base numbers was 666 was representative of the sun, and then 1080 was representative of the earth mother. We go to the Ohio Valley, all of the sun temples, which are hinges, and we have stone hinge. You're aware of the stones in the middle, but the hinge is a circular earthwork with an outer wall, an interior ditch, and generally one gateway that's aligned to a solar event. In the case of stone hinge, the gateway is aligned to the summer solstice sunrise. The hinges in the Ohio Valley are all aligned to solar events. They are either 660 or 666 feet. Um, a little complicated on the 660 because the 660 and 240, and there's a whole mathematical scope on why they use the 660 opposed to the 666. So we have those two numbers associated with the Sun Temple, and then as far as the 1080, um, geometrically, uh, 
the symbol was square for the Earth Mother, um, used by the Babylonians. Square earthworks in the Ohio Valley are 1080 feet on each side. Amazing. And and so when they so when they built these more than a coincidence. Yeah, when so when they built these forts or whatever, they they built them with a square and a circle, meaning that it had the sun and the moon incorporated into both of them. Well, the base of the religion that you you know you have to understand, you really need to understand before you go to the earthwork sites is it was all a matter of the balance of power. So you wanted an equal amount of sun and an equal amount of earth. So it was the mm-hmm. balance of those powers. So the yin yang um, was was used in the construction of the earthwork. And we have squares and circles in the Ohio Valley where the square and the circle have equal areas. Well, to be able to do that, you have to have the mathematical ability to square a circle, which is not easy math. That's advanced mathematics to be able to achieve that. So we know that they were using advanced mathematics. But the symbolism of the square and the circle having equal areas is that balance, the yin-yang, the, what they call the sacred marriage, the holy union of opposites. So that is very prevalent in the Ohio Valley within the earthworks, both their shapes and within the measurements that were used in their construction. Yeah, they, they're, it, it's such a shame that, that, that we have destroyed so much because we could have learned so much from them. Uh, it, it just, it, it still, you know, my head is still swimming from all of the material that you gathered. And, and anybody who is, is interested in this, uh, should, should check out the Nephilim because, um, he has such an amazing amount of, of material there that you can go in and you can look through and then understand that, that there is so much going on here, even even into um, the, you know, it, to me, they had a higher form of worship than than the Romans and the Greeks who had their different gods for this and gods for that. It seems to me that it's it's simplistic, but it it it's it it brings it down to um, a greater significance when you're understanding that the moon and the sun represent different aspects, and it's the, it's you know the earth and the sky, and it's it, it, it to me it, it makes it so much more profound that they understood that aspect of it, and they didn't dirty it all up with all of the other little gods that all of the other you know cultured cultures you know did. Um, I found uh, you know one of the sweetest things I found and this takes us totally off subject but I do want to bring it up because I know that a lot of the people will kind of be touched by this. You y- you mentioned giants and and people immediately think of fee five four fum or they think of the the giants in the bible that were destructive. When when these people buried a child separately. They always buried, almost always, buried a dog with the child so that the, the child could be watched over in the afterlife as well as this life. I mean, there, there, are, there are things that are scattered through those, those, those aspects of their culture that, that you, you, you totally step back and you say, oh my goodness, these were kind, compassionate, loving people. It feels to me also as though they, they were really not a warring People, they well, yes, they made weapons and stuff like that, but but they appeared to be more peaceful. They they more preferred to have a peaceful existence than to have a warring one. Um, from what I could tell, 
uh, when when the Native Americans took took you know decided that they were going to wipe them out, they did a pretty good job. In the end, they did. I think when they were trading here, though, no, that they they tried to assimilate um, into the indigenous population and use those. And we obviously have you know scientific proof again of that. Um, there is a genetic marker called Haplo X um, that originated basically in the Dead Sea, and it's the Dead Sea and the Jordan River where the Amorite's initial home was. But we find high instances of that in the Ojibwa, who would have been up there where the mines are, and then eventually who archaeologists call the Hopewell, which we know were the uh, Sioux Indians that at one time were in the Ohio Valley, they have high instances of this X, And we know that originated from the Jordan River and that Dead Sea area, the same place where the giants originated. Now, it's also interesting to know that the largest Native American groups were the Sioux. And George Catlin, when describing the Mandan Indians, said that some of them had green eyes, blue eyes, red hair. Even some of them had blonde hair. So who would have been able to change the whole genetic makeup of a large population if they had not been intermingling in numbers, in great numbers, with uh, a different race of people? Yeah, and, you know, there are people today that have that marker. And um, I, I, the one thing, um, the, the, the double rows of teeth are the one, one thing that, that, you know, kind of, Pulled my curiosity. They also had extra digits occasionally, and there are people today that still have, you know, that fair skin and the different colored hair, and and are born with the double rows of teeth and the um and the extra and the extra digits. So that so that we still we at this point in time we carry the genetics of of that aspect of our her our heritage within us. And it's important that we understand it, that we know where you know where it comes from. Um, and again, the, the element of, of the government sort of covering up with the Smithsonian, you know, conveniently losing so many bones that were that were sent to them. Um, and and you have the um, reports from the Smithsonian, but you know, I we found I know a lot of people have found that when we go back to try to find those reports in the Smithsonian themselves, they no longer exist. So they're they're basically wiping out this element, this area of our evolution totally, which is really upsetting. Well, um done for political correctness. Okay. Um the uh the director of the Smithsonian was sympathetic to Native Americans. They knew um, that this was a different group of people. They know that they had Northern European roots. They still know that. They find it politically incorrect to say that at one time Europeans were here, that some of the mounds may not have been constructed by Native Americans, so it is being it is being shelved. It's being uh, stopped from being disseminated to people, and they know that that's the truth. I actually have skull comparisons in in my book of the generic of the courted people. They're they're dead on. There's there's no mistake that we're looking at the exact same people. But because it's politically incorrect, then that is what dictates the current 
um, history. It's not science. It's not data. It's not a hypothesis and trying to come up with an answer. It's all politically based. I, you know, it it it's disappointing to think that that you know we go to school and we we are taught by teachers and we assume that they are teaching us what is absolutely the truth and then then later on to learn that we've been lied to intentionally is very upsetting and and you know while I'm an ex school teacher I think we should you know trash the whole system and start again but um but but especially with with the giants because i think that they they added such a rich aspect to our heritage that that we should be celebrating them i mean you know people look at things like stonehenge and they look at uh, I forget i i'm i'm taking the pyramids out of the mix but but stonehenge and all of those massive rocks that are all over england giants easily could have put them in place well well it would have you know taken normal man, you know, you know, tons of men to lift those tons of, of stones that, you know, the, the element of the giants being able to lift and, and, and to put them in place makes so much greater sense to me. And, and why people can't imagine that is, is beyond me. I, I do believe that the giants constructed Stonehenge. There's not a doubt in my mind. Um, they did. Um, um, the hinge was, they adapted the hinge. The hinge was already there when they got there, but they adapted that as their solar temple. And even though they constructed the stones of Stonehenge, they soon moved away to that, away from that, and just constructed the earthwork. And mm-hmm. sometimes they would have a standing stone, but even that eventually they got out of, and they would just have a burial mound in the center of the hinge, which is exactly what we find in the Ohio Valley. It's a hinge, no stones in the center, but there are burial mounds within the center. So we can look at the mounds in England, which are round conical mounds constructed by the Beaker people, who scientists or archaeologists call the Beaker people. Conical mounds with circles around them, we find that in the Ohio Valley. Hinges, we find that in the Ohio Valley. Um, Serpent Mm -hmm. mounds, we find that in the Ohio Valley. So everything that was a prototype of what we'd eventually find in the Ohio Valley, we find in England associated with the Beaker people. The Beaker people's skull types, which were the Daenerys, the Corbett, and the Borobies, we find all three of those distinct skull types within the burial mounds of the Ohio Valley. So the evidence is there. This is exactly who was in the Ohio Valley. Absolutely. And the other thing that that definitely, um, you mentioned the Serpent Mound, and I was fascinated with um, the fact that you know, when when you say serpent to me, my skin crawls because I don't like snakes. But the snake was really a symbol of wisdom. It was it was something that was very sacred to all of these people. And and you know, when it was a, a circle, it represented the sun. So could you kind of go into some of the symbology behind, especially the serpent mound that's in Ohio? Well, the serpent has a dual role. In one case, the serpent is representing of the sun, but there's also instances in the Ohio Valley where the serpent was the consort of the Earth Mother and the underworld. 
So we find the serpent in several instances in like lower regions below earthwork complexes. Um, it was uh-huh. also a protector of the dead. And so we have a couple instances where we have burial mounds and there's like a curved serpent like right next to them. And so there was some duality as far as how they were using it. It's just knowing what context that you're seeing it to understand how they were using it in that case, whether it was by burial mounds, where it's located. So, But generally, there's so many serpents in the Ohio Valley. Fort Hill is shaped like a serpent. There's a serpent effigy at Newark. There's a serpent in Indiana. Many of the mounds and earthworks are actually constructed to be a serpent. So we think of the serpent mask, but almost every earthwork you go to that still exists will have some aspect of the serpent within its construction. So it's and, very prevalent. I mean, it's almost every earth. Well, and and also they they most of the serpents have an egg in their mouth, and and you showed a picture of um, an Egyptian hieroglyph that had the serpent with an egg in its mouth too. So, you know, what does the egg symbolize? Because I know at least in in you know the the large serpent man, I know there's an egg. What does the egg represent? Uh, there's different interpretations of that. It's some believe that uh, the serpent is just the rejuvenation of life. Um, in some, it's like the acting Monday of the whole world. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some different um, theories on exactly what it means. Even in Egyptian times, nobody's really sure. It's just what's interesting is that we see that same symbolism used over in Egypt. Um, the serpent mound in uh, Oban, Scotland, is swallowing its, uh, an egg, and then the one over in, uh, of course, uh, the famous serpent mound in Adams County, Ohio, is, is also. So just exactly what it means, there's some different interpretations. I think the interesting thing is that they were using the same symbolism, and it was repeating oh, I- itself across the world. But, you know, nobody really has, to my knowledge, and my knowledge in in this area isn't that great, but I don't don't recall ever anybody saying that that the the mounds were created by giants. It was, you know, the Hopewell Indians. But never never have I heard it mentioned that, that the giants created them. Well, there was the conical mound with the peoples around them, and a lot of them had the giants within them. But I think an important aspect, because I don't want to say that it was a Caucasian race that built them, the Hopewell moved in, and the Hopewell were the Sioux, and eventually the giants just were absorbed into the Sioux population. That's why they have that high instances of the haplolect. So mm-hmm. they say, well, what happened to them? And they were absorbed. They were absorbed into other populations. Mainly, we know that the Osage were, um, according to their legends, were in the Ohio Valley. They were mound builders. It just so happens the Osage were the largest Native Americans on the continent. Well, how did that happen? How did their genetic makeup change so much more than any other Native Americans to achieve this height? Well, obviously, they intermingled with a large race at one time. Well, that was these initial Amorites that first came into the Ohio Valley. Now, a lot of them are buried sitting up, and, and not not all of them, but but a lot, 
and facing east and then there are others that are that are arranged in in a circle with their heads to the center i think i just saw one article that said the feet were to the center what is the philosophy you know as far as you can figure out behind you know being seated and facing east and and then the the other um being in circles that 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 fascinated me well, facing the east is just symbolic that the sun dies every every day that it sets. It's reborn every day that it rises. So facing mm-hmm. the eastern sun is symbolic of, of of being reborn. So that's the symbolism of that. The spoked burial of heads either being in the center or feet to the center is just a sunburst, a sun symbol. Now what's interesting is is that in Wiltshire, at Stonehenge, there was a burial there that was put in that same spoke pattern. Hmm. Well, I guess then you have to so have enough. So we do have precedent. Yeah. Uh, well, they haven't found a lot. Uh, well, they haven't recorded that they found a lot of material um, in these mounds. You know, short of some crude. Um, implements and and pipes several lots of pipes but they haven't found a lot of um implements i i think in in some burials they found broken pottery you know that symbolized that the you know the life was broken and so therefore the pottery was there mm-hmm. but in in comparison to a lot of other burials not ours but but you know ancient civilizations there were a lot more implements that were that were found in them is it that they haven't been recorded that they were taken away you know how do you, how do you explain the fact that there are very few artifacts that are in these mounds well all right that takes us to kind of a different topic but the mounds themselves were worshipped. They were they believed in ancestral worship um, as they did in England, and it meant that they would come to the mounds and pray to the ancestors that were buried there. But not like our graveyards now. They would put several people in mounds, but once they were in there, they became a collective of the dead. So. You were worshiping your ancestors. You weren't worshiping one single individual. But it's also based on the belief that those souls never left. They didn't go to Valhalla. They didn't go to heaven. They didn't go to the happy hunting ground. They were right there. So they didn't put artifacts in the graves because they weren't going on a journey to another place. They were there. And they were going to remain there. Now, what's interesting is, is in the book of Enoch, it says that God sentenced the giant race to forever inhabit earth, that their souls would never leave. They would never go into what we would call a heaven, but to forever be sentenced to be earthbound. And that correlates with the burial type, but how the burial mounds were... Uh, worshipped and venerated. That's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. And I, I know in some they found, uh, they, they did find shells. They found mica and um, mica over the faces. So, but, you know, I, I guess this is, this, this is going into, 
different generations of the mound builders, probably, because in some they, they that is they're later. Weak. That is later, and that's kind of after the uh, the um, giants that had been absorbed, and so there was somewhat of a change in the religious aspect of how the mounds were being interpreted. But most of them were ancestor worship and the belief that the souls of the dead were there. Now that takes us to another topic of paranormal activity around burial mounds. I know the largest burial mound in the Ohio Valley is there at Grave Creek at Moundsville Prison, which is noted as the most haunted place in America. Well, why is it haunted? Because you have a portal the largest portal or burial mound in the Ohio Valley in its front yard. Oh, wow. And you can almost bet when you watch the paranormal show that there is a burial mound by that site. They are doors. They're not only doors for the ancients, but other things can go through those, too. Okay. But they're doors. They're portals. Portals, okay. And... and that is an aspect that we are going to be pursuing in the next year is um, the paranormal activity associated with the barrel mount and uh, them being these portals and doors and how we can link paranormal activity generally to um, being near burial mound sites. Well, and, and when you stop to think about it, first of all, you have um, a burial, and then you have people coming and putting energy into that for generation after generation after generation. So it makes a great deal of sense that there would be a portal of some sort there. And um, I, I would I would uh, imagine that EVPs and the, the magnetism should should be you know off the wall when you when you are around um, mounds like that because. You know, when when we when we put our energy in, when we are inserting our energy into a place, whether it's symbolic or, or it represents something to us, we energize it. And and if for thousands of years people have been have been there and have been putting their energy in, sending their love, sending their emotional support, however you want to call it, um, it, it seems to me that that would definitely open a portal and. My my other thought is that you know they I I would love to see if and and I I don't know if you've even thought of this or looked into this if they were on ley lines or if there were energetic vortexes around them and because they were such a sensitive race I would I would absolutely think that ley lines were probably a part of some of of the burials there. Maybe not all of them, but but a lot of them. I know the um, stone chambers that are here in Connecticut and, and New York. There are several of them that have magnetic anomalies at the entrance of the um, of the chambers, and and I I I don't know that the giants built them. Frankly, um, you know uh, they're too little for giants, but but. They definitely have, you know, their corbel construction, so the Phoenicians may well have, have used them or whatever. But but there are definitely magnetic anomalies, and there are a lot of paranormal experiences around those structures as well. So that, so that I, I do are, believe... There are, and, and... 
Go ahead. And they, they've proven that the ones in England are on ley lines, and I have done some cursory work on ley lines with the Marymount, and yeah, you are correct, and they were using ley lines. But let me uh, put those, uh, those stone chambers in historical context that are out east. Around 2700 BC, which is the early Bronze Age, would have been the initial context of them coming over here. And that was really the waning moments of the megalithic era. So they were getting away from the Stonehenge, the stone tombs. However, if you think of them coming west into Lake Superior, they were probably at trading centers that were located on the East Coast in New York, Connecticut, some of those areas. There is, they would have been building stone chambers. It wouldn't have lasted probably for more than 100, maybe 200 years, but it does fit within the time frame of the megalithic era of when they first started coming over here. So they would be associated with the giants. It's just a small window before they start coming in further west into the Ohio Valley. But those initial stone chambers probably date to 27, 25, 2400 BC, and that would be in the time frame when the megalithic era still was uh, uh, going on. Yeah, that's um, that was our I, – I did a documentary with my husband on them, and uh, we found that – um, and, and again, no no artifacts of any sort, but we did find that, that again, they, the greatest preponderance of them is is in the northeast. You know, if you if you quarter the map, it's in the northeast section. Um, the chambers, you know, while there are chambers in Europe and everything, but but in this country, most of them, there there used to be two thousand just just in the area I live in, and now there are less than 200. So um, it, it's really quite profound. Yeah, and I would I would just designate those as first contact. Ah, okay. So the earliest contact with the giant race is why those stone teamers are there. That's why it's so much different than what you would find a thousand years later in the Ohio Valley, but it was still within the realm of the megalithic era. It still falls within um, the Amorites bringing uh, over uh, copper and uh, from Isle Royal, ten out of uh, out of uh, southern England, and so I attribute those to first contact with the giants, and those are the remains of that 2500 to uh, 28, 2900 BC era. Yeah, a lot of the, um, especially with uh, Stonehenge um, in New York, uh, in New Hampshire. Um, they've carbon dated charcoal to 4,000 BC. So um, it's 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 kind of it's it's fascinating, and and certainly we have you know covered a plethora of of stuff here. Um, I know you have to go, but can I ask you? Will you come back again sometime when we can get the microphone clearer and we can talk some more on this material? Yes, yeah. Um, clearing up the microphone would really help, but uh, it happens. You know, there's always glitches in uh, in media, so it's not a problem. Okay. Well, I I just so thank you so much. I know that you're down celebrating your father's birthday, but um, 
I, I really would appreciate it if we could if we could do this again, and we'll try to clear up the microphones. And I want to thank you so much for for sharing as much as you have. And um, I will have a ton more questions for you at a later date as well. <laughs> Yeah, I think we could do more time. I know we were initially scheduled for uh, two hours, so I appreciate uh, you breaking me off at, uh, I'm not sure what time it is now, but um, yeah, we can get into some more aspects. Um, I would really like for you to uh, maybe go to some of these sites in the Ohio Valley just to get what your uh, psychic reading is, what your uh, what take you're getting from those. Um, we've talked about the energy fields that are being emitted from the mound, so I'd like to get your... Uh, uh, your take on that as well, because that is something that I've been really pushing for, is to bring um, psychics to some of these sites. The hilltop uh, uh, earthworks, the stoneworks up on top of the hill, some of the mound sites, some of the geometric earthworks, see what kind of residual energy is still there. It would be, um, yeah, let's talk about this further at some point, because... Um, that's something that, that that would fascinate me and I would love to do. Um I I you know, like I said, Patrick and I did a lot of work on the on the stone chambers here in, in can I think one day we, we went into almost forty of them and um there's something very magical there and, and I would I would absolutely be delighted to, to do something like that. So let's see if we can't make it happen. Yes, I would like that. And that's something that I have not explored. And so at some point uh, in the very near future, um, I would like to go and investigate a few of those uh, sites. So I'll keep you in mind as my uh, possible tour guide uh, coming up that way and uh, being able to visit a few of these sites. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much, Fritz. And, and, And I do apologize for the sound. We will try to keep it We'll we'll try to get it cleared up so next time we can do a little bit more and go a little bit more in depth. But okay, real good. Thank, All right, thank, thank you. you so thank much. Bye bye. Okay, um, that will be fun. It would be I could we could we could do a show um, sort of uh, from the Serpent Mound. That would be fabulous. Um, anyhow, I will keep you guys posted and. Um, I did mute myself, and I don't know if it worked or not, but we will work on on getting better sound next time, and I certainly will see if I can't get together with him and go visit the Ohio Mounds, not that far from me, and maybe we'll do a show on the mounds from the mounds. Who knows? But um, thank you guys for being here. Um, Okay, test it now if Deb is in queue. Are you in queue, Deb? Um, am I echoing now? Am I echoing now? I'll let Deb no, talk. You're to you, not. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. But that's why we think it's you because it wasn't happening between you and I. Just went well. It was you and I alone. But then when I put him on and I muted me, it was still doing it. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Am I echoing? No echo. So how can it be my mic? Okay. Well, we'll get our we'll get our um, um, 
Yeah, <laughs> well, yes, yes, Chris. Yes, Chris. She, she was muted on the board, and the echo stopped, right? Now both open, are both open. Okay, so I'm open, and Deb, so you talk, Deb. Okay. Okay. Yeah, see, we got both mics open. So yep. it's me. It's that old thing. If you can't hear it, it's you. We- <laughs> yes, dear, I'll mute Barb's. Oh, this is fun. Okay, so is there – I did. I I muted Barb, and, and I'll probably only live to do that once in my life, but it was, you know, for technical purposes only. Okay, unmuting Barb, hushing up. Okay, just wait a minute. Let me try plugging. No, I can't. Yes, I can. No, I can't. I was going to try putting on a different um, headset and everything. I have but a question, I'm... though. Okay. Do you, by chance, have your phone near the computer and have um, Skype open on it? Oh, I have Skype open. So if I shut off Skype, let's try shutting off Skype. Because I went and double-checked online since we have the same type of phone and made sure Skype was shut off on my phone. All right. Now my Skype is shut off. Is the echo still there? Well, I I don't know if anybody else can hear. Okay. Come on, chat room. Is is it still there? Am I still echoing? Because I I don't hear if it's echoing or or not. But I turned Skype off. Yep, echo. Well, Christy says yep, and Dr. Virtual, no, Jennifer's Journey says. And Jennifer says no. And Chris says yes. Oh, Deb's got the echo now. All right, I give up. Okay, so I think next time what I'll do is I can do it on Skype, I guess. I just usually call in with the phone. But if I call in on Skype, there shouldn't be any problem. Well, we'll work on it. But it doesn't happen on other shows, I I don't think. Huh. Well, we'll have to play around with it, and um, over time we'll get more professional. But thank you, everybody, for being here. Does anybody have a question? We'll get the Chris tutorial on this. I tried all, I I actually went through the whole list earlier about if there was a Bluetooth headset and all that kind of stuff. So, um, no, I don't have all those questions. Um, I'm on a cordless, though. Oh, so you are the problem. Okay, so wait a minute. If I. Plug it. No, I can't do that. We'll 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 figure it out. We'll use Skype next time. Um, and uh, screw the whole thing. No, we'll just <laughs> we'll use Skype next time. <laughs> but he was there. Yeah, I got one of them too. But he was fascinating, and there was so much info- information there. I'm so sorry, but you know, I he was he, his father's 80th birthday, and um, it's uh, you know he you know it was his father's birthday. You can't you can't exactly say to someone, no, no, don't spend time with your father who's 80 years old. Spend time with us. But 
he has he's just so full of amazing information that that um I will get him on again and um just try to be muted as much as possible when the guest is talking. Swell. Um yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> I can do that. Um yeah, yeah, right. It'll work. It'll work. Um but but yeah, I I you know, it's funny. I read his book and it, there was so much information in it. I thought, "Oh, crap. This is going to be something else." And um and he was he was terrific. So um, I, I do have to thank Mark Eddy for for um, putting me in contact with this guy. And if we can, if we, if I can take the show to um, to Ohio and the and the Serpent Mound, ooh, would that be cool? So um, who knows, folks? This this should be this should be interesting to say the very least. So I'm going to call it an evening, everybody. Um, Chris's show, Curious Times, is at ten o'clock. So if you're up and functional, you should you should be dialing into that show because um, I don't know who she has on tonight, but whoever it is, it'll be fascinating, and you never know what to expect with her show. So it's it's always an adventure. And um, you know, one of the shows that I highly, highly, highly—it's a nothing show. That's even better. She has nothing planned. God knows what will happen. Anyhow, um, let's everybody tune in to Chris's show, and um, <laughs> maybe she'll play music, but hopefully not sing um, at ten o'clock. And, and between now and then, get some coffee, take your shoes off, put the cat out or dog out or whatever it is, and um, we'll see you at Chris's show. Deb, thanks so much. This was fun, I think. And um, we will we will talk to you. Oh, let's see when next will we talk to you. Oh, Monday. No, Sunday. Sunday I'm on Chris's show, so it's not a nothing show. And um, then on Monday I have uh, a Merry Monday with Mary Peeler, and, and we have a, a most exciting new introduction that Chris helped put together that is fabulous. And then Tuesday night at midnight, uh, we have a new a new person coming on board. He's a, he's he's called Shaman Ray, and um, he should be very very interested interesting. And um, we will we will oh, and then next week the spiritual development classes start circles. Spiritual development circle starts. So um, if you're interested in being a part of that, you can sign up for it on my website. BarbaraDelong.com, and uh, that's that's uh, a lot of fun too. So, thank you, everybody. It's been fun, and um, Deb and I will be back, and we will check in with you um, Sunday night from Christmas and Monday for Merry Monday. So, <laughs> good night now, and thanks for being here. Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. When flow flows, she flows in the know. Mind ruminates the rates. Shown them all, I heed the call. Seeing the rest, I choose the best. Sometimes it's ours, sometimes it's not. When the fox walks, is it called a fox trot? That's a real question. Compare Progressive Direct rates with competitors' rates. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.